Russia continued its assault on Ukraine for the second day in a row today, hitting infrastructure and other targets in cities across the country. It's Tuesday, October 11th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on Russia's attacks on Ukraine. Also, Hurricane Harvey caused catastrophic damage to Houston five years ago. The recovery effort has been a massive undertaking. We saw that immigrant workers, many of them undocumented, were the folks who were really called in as the second responders to rebuild the city. Immigrants are now playing a similar role in Florida, even though Governor Ron DeSantis remains openly hostile to undocumented people in his state. It's 401, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden administration is trying to rally the world ahead of a mostly symbolic vote at the United Nations to condemn Russia's war in Ukraine. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports the U.S. argues no country can sit on the sidelines as Russia violates the U.N. Charter. Russia's latest barrage of attacks on Ukrainian cities should remind countries of what's at stake, says the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield. The choice facing U.N. members has become even more stark. The stakes have become even more clear. Now is not the time for placation. It is the time for action. She says about 70 countries have now co-sponsored a General Assembly resolution that condemns Russia's actions as a violation of the U.N. Charter. Russia vetoed a similar draft in the Security Council but doesn't have that power in the General Assembly. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Days after OPEC Plus, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, made a decision to cut oil production next month and send oil prices higher, President Biden says it's time to reassess Washington's relationship with Riyadh. NPR's Tamara Keith has details. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby says that although the production cut was a decision by OPEC+, the cartel is led by Saudi Arabia, and it deserves the blame. We thought it was a short-sighted decision um, and that it benefited Russia at a time when nobody um, in any capacity should be trying to benefit Vladimir Putin. Higher oil prices would help Russia fund its war in Ukraine. Kirby said Biden hasn't yet spoken to the members of Congress calling for a change in cooperation with the kingdom, but he will. The president believes that it's time to take another look at this relationship and make sure that it's serving our national security interests. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. Baltimore prosecutors have dropped all charges against Adnan Syed, whose murder case was chronicled in the popular podcast Serial. Syed's conviction was overturned and he was released last month after new evidence came to light about the 1999 killing of Syed's ex-girlfriend, Heyman Lee. But charges still loomed. Until today, Baltimore City State's attorney Marilyn Mosby says newly tested DNA evidence does not connect Syed to Lee's death. The items that we tested had never before been tested, and we used advanced DNA to determine that it was not Adnan Saeed. Investigators found evidence, they say, pointing to two other possible suspects, and authorities say that evidence was not handed over to Syed's attorneys. At last check on Wall Street, the Dow was up 36 points at 29,239. It's NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. 
Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she's considering vetoing pay raises the city council approved last week for the mayor's office and for councillors. She says she's concerned by the scale and the timing of the 20% pay hikes. The mayor had proposed roughly 11% pay raises. If she vetoes the raises, city council could still make them a reality with a two-thirds vote. The head of the MBTA is scheduled to testify on the transit system's recent safety problems this Friday before a U.S. Senate subcommittee. Senator Elizabeth Warren said today that T General Manager Steve Poftak has accepted her invitation to appear at a hearing that day in Boston. The Senate Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee's Subcommittee on Economic Policy will also hear from leaders of the state's Department of Public Utilities and the Federal Transit Administration. The Steamship Authority says it may have to trim its ferry service to Martha's Vineyard in Nantucket. That's because federal regulators are proposing to extend vessel speed limits into Vineyard and Nantucket Sounds. The proposal is designed to protect endangered right whales from potentially deadly ship strikes. WBUR's Josie Gurina reports. The proposal calls for seasonal speed zones to expand to the waters between Cape Cod and the islands between December and late May. The Steamship Authority's Sean Driscoll says if the proposal goes through, its high-speed ferry from Hyannis to Nantucket would be eliminated during the restriction period, and there will be fewer trips to the islands. Having to go from three round trips a day by each vessel to two round trips per day on the Nantucket route, which would be a significant reduction in service and a significant impairment to our ability to provide necessities of life to the people who live on that island. Driscoll says ferries have not spotted right whales on its routes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. In sports, the Bruins will open up their regular season tomorrow night when they take on the Capitals down in Washington. In the forecast, we'll have clear skies tonight. The lows will be around 48 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, the highs will be around 72 It'll be partly sunny on Thursday with a chance of showers after 3 o'clock. The highs will be around 71. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose, flavorful modern Latin American fare, catering office holiday parties and gatherings in greater Boston, lacuchara.com, and CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Russian forces continued their attack on Ukraine for a second day in a row, hitting cities across the country. In the capital of Kyiv, air raid sirens sounded at 8 a.m. That sent hundreds of families back into the subway system for shelter. NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez visited some of those families this morning, and he's on the line. Hi, Franco. Hi, Sasha. Franco, things had been relatively calm in Kyiv for several months. How have these attacks changed that? You know, it's really struck a panic in the city. As you know, things have been relatively calm here for months. But last night and for much of the morning, streets became eerily quiet after the attacks. Businesses closed down, restaurants closed. I spoke with a family sheltering in the Dorohojichi metro station. People haven't done that since the earliest weeks of the war. While her daughter played cards, Ina Filipchuk told me, sadly, how familiar it felt being back on those cold granite floors. She's saying it reminds her of the first days of the war when they were sitting in the same spot. 
She pointed around to all the different corners of the room that she said she knows too well. Her 13-year-old daughter, Maria, told us she was supposed to have her first algebra lesson today. But that obviously got canceled. She says she had also plans to go for a walk with her friends. But some of their families decided to go to Poland. Franco, are they worried that Russia is going to continue these attacks on Kyiv? Yes. They just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, not as many people were in the metro station today as there were yesterday, I'll note. But it's hard, you know, to figure this out. You know, here is Ina's husband, Gene, talking about how the bombings take him back to some of the hardest days of the war. For me, it's a kind of deja vu. It uh, happened again. But uh, this experience uh, was so hard that you try to pack it in a package and put somewhere in a far square not to think about it. I also spoke with another couple who was sitting nearby. They told me it doesn't feel the same. Here's Anna Savenko. She says she has a lot more confidence now in Ukraine's military and its air defense systems. But she says it's still no way to live. She was supposed to have the day off today, but instead she was spending it in the subway system. The worst part, she told me, was the uncertainty. She just didn't know what was going to happen next. She didn't know what Russian President Vladimir Putin will do. We mentioned that Kyiv wasn't the only city hit by these Russian airstrikes. What has been happening elsewhere in Ukraine? Yes, it was the second day of strikes. You know, at least 19 people were killed yesterday in the blast that took out water supply and power stations. At least one more person was killed this morning in an attack on the southeastern city of Zaporizhia. And power was knocked out for hours in the western city of Lviv. And here in Kyiv, they just announced there'll be power rationing in the city. There was an emergency meeting of G7 leaders who pledged more support for Ukraine. And President Volodymyr Zelensky asked them for more modern and effective air defense systems. Franco, how do these attacks change the outlook of the war? Well, on the one hand, it could be a signal of a major escalation in the war. But on the other, it's also raised questions about Moscow's capability. In a public address, Zelensky said last night that it would not deter Ukraine. He said it was a sign of Russia losing and that Moscow was resorting to terrorist tactics because they could not win on the battlefield. He's saying Ukraine cannot be intimidated and that they're more united than ever. You know, let's also be clear that these were attacks on civilian infrastructure. It does not change the calculus on the battlefield where Ukraine has had the upper hand in recent weeks. And the United Kingdom's top spy chief, for example, said today that Russian forces were exhausted and Putin is making strategic errors in judgment. NPR's Franco Ordonez in Kyiv. Thank you. Thanks, Sasha. Southwest Florida has begun the arduous process of cleaning up and rebuilding after catastrophic damage caused by Hurricane Ian. The coastal cities and barrier island villages are about to find out what storm-struck communities in other Gulf states have learned in recent years that America has a labor shortage and immigrant workers, many of whom are in this country illegally, fill a critical role in the storm recovery. NPR's John Burnett reports. There's a statue in a riverfront park in New Orleans that depicts, in marble and bronze, a construction worker with a hammer clambering up a pitched roof. Its title, Tribute to Latin American Workers. It's dedicated to the laborers who helped rebuild the city after Hurricane Katrina. 
Andy Copland, former executive director of the Louisiana Recovery Authority, says back-to-back hurricanes, Katrina and Rita, damaged a quarter million houses. And we didn't have enough roofers, carpenters, plumbers, electricians, uh, or laborers to fix them all at once. And so we couldn't have rebuilt without help from outside the state of Louisiana. And we got it from the thousands of Latin American workers who came to New Orleans and South Louisiana and help us rebuild. Today, Southwest Florida is where New Orleans was in September of 2005 and where Houston was in September of 2017 after Hurricane Harvey. In Florida, thousands of homes and businesses will need rebuilding. But first, who's going to drag out the sodden, reeking, moldy furnishings? Adelino is a 49-year-old Mayan from Guatemala who declined to give his last name because he's been living in Naples, Florida, for two years as an undocumented immigrant. He says right now homeowners are paying $150 a day, cash money, to anyone willing to clean out their swamp dwellings. A sizable unauthorized population in Naples had their jobs in hotels, restaurants, and landscaping crews washed away by the storm and they've taken on this dirty work. We clean the houses, pull out the things that are ruined, and carry them to the curb. Adelino lives in a time-worn mobile home park called Harmony Shores, along with many other blue-collar workers. It took six feet of storm surge during Ian. All their things are ruined, and they don't have the luxury of paying other people to clean out their trailers. Valeria Orfila, an Argentine who works as a cook at a school, sits with a friend in the mobile home park, surveying her street lined with unlivable trailers. We have friends who today, on this Sunday, are working in downtown Naples cleaning restaurants and hotels. Though we don't have anywhere to live, we continue to work trying to raise up this city that is so beautiful. Overseeing the recovery is Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. He is running for re-election, he's considered a likely candidate for the White House, and he's openly hostile about undocumented people in his state. Last month, he flew two plane loads of just-arrived asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard to stick it to liberal enclaves. And last week, he made these comments about four looters. Three of the four are illegal aliens. They're illegally in our country. And not only that, they try to loot and ransack in the aftermath of a natural disaster. I mean, they should be prosecuted, but they need to be sent back to their home country. They should not be here at all. Like New Orleans, Houston depended on a migrant workforce after Hurricane Harvey. The relentless rains flooded a third of that city and damaged more than 200,000 homes. We saw that immigrant workers, many of them are undocumented. Construction workers were the folks who were really called in as the second responders to rebuild the city, to gut homes, and to to actually put Houston back together. Emily Tim is co-director of the Workers' Defense Project, a Texas immigrant advocacy group that works in Houston. She says a governor should not score political points bashing undocumented migrants at the same time they're helping to clean up his storm-ravaged state. The immigrant workers and the construction workers who are rebuilding Florida They deserve that recognition and that credit and to stop being used as political pawns. A recent statewide poll showed a majority of Floridians approved of the governor's controversial decision to send migrants to other states. It's uncertain what attitudes are about the role of migrant workers in the storm damage zone. I know that they can be a big help because most of the migrants do want to work. 
Gary Dickerson is a 73-year-old retired carpenter who got a foot and a half of water in his Naples apartment. I just have an issue with people that are not legal. And, and so many Spanish people here can't even speak English. But they're all God's children. The migrant workers interviewed for this story, who lost so much, did add this. The community has turned out to help them with clothing, food, and other items. Said Valeria, the Argentine woman, Naples is very unified and we're grateful. John Burnett, NPR News, Naples, Florida. If you like sweater weather or are a big fan of decorative gourds, we have someone you need to meet. My name is Travis Ginger. I am a horticulture teacher and I also grow giant pumpkins. And we do mean giant. Last weekend, Ginger, who is from Anoka, Minnesota, traveled 2,000 miles to the World Championship pumpkin way off in Half Moon Bay, California, with some very special cargo in tow. Here we go. That is the largest pumpkin ever grown in North America. The record-breaking gourd came in at a staggering 2,560 pounds, but it didn't happen overnight. So this journey starts about mid-April, so that's about a 180-day journey of growing these things. What was his secret? Ah, labor of love, man. Yeah, also some good genetics, lots of fertilizer, and a pinch of luck. Now, if you're wondering how on earth he managed to move that pumpkin across the country, the answer is slowly. 35-hour drive from Minnesota to Half Moon Bay, California with a pumpkin. It's not like you can set any records for speeding or anything, but uh, we got it there. Ginger won't have to worry about gas money, though. His pumpkin won him $9 per pound, more than $23,000 in prize money. Oh my gosh, which is enough to buy you quite a few pumpkin spice lattes. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 66 degrees in Boston at 419. Ahead on All Things Considered, remembering longtime NPR Midwest Bureau Chief Ken Barkas, who died today at the age of 67. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the ICA. Discover how Jean-Michel Basquiat, Paul Clay, and many other artists have been inspired by childhood in To Begin Again, icaboston.org. And the trustees, caring for more than 120 special places across Massachusetts. More about how you can help at thetrustees.org slash Y-O-U. In business news, the streak is over after dropping for 16 straight weeks. The average price of regular gasoline in Massachusetts jumped 10 cents in the past week. The new state average cost the, the state the, in the state is $3.58 a gallon. That's still 23 cents lower than a month ago and well below the current national average. On Wall Street, stocks were mixed today. The Dow was up 0.12% close at 29,239. NASDAQ down 1.1% at 10,426. And the S&P 500 closed down 0.65% at 3589. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's My Obsession, with Stephen Galloway's Devil's Eye, set to music by the Rolling Stones, now through October 16th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And the Bull Run Restaurant in Shirley, featuring holiday shows with Tom Rush, Bill Kirchin, and Cherish the Ladies. Tickets and info at bullrunrestaurant.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. We'll have clear skies tonight. The lows will be around 48 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow, a high around 72. Right now, 65 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A moment now to honor one of our longtime colleagues, the Midwest Bureau Chief on our national desk, Ken Barkis, who died today of complications arising from cancer. Ken was 67. You can hear his imprint as an editor all through our programs. NPR's Melissa Block has this remembrance. So many of the voices you hear on NPR will tell you that Ken shaped them into the reporters they are today by mentoring, cajoling, and sometimes critiquing with blunt, painful truths when a story was weak or a description cliché. NPR correspondent Tovia Smith remembers one of her first edits with Ken decades ago. And he said he wanted my story to sing or something like that. And when I gave him what I wrote, he just went, like, silent for a second. And then he blurts out at me, I was asking for a symphony. This is like elevator music. (laughs) That stung. But, Tovia says, it didn't take long to discover Ken's big-hearted side. Just below that prickly exterior, he really was a total mushball. Another NPR correspondent, Eric Westervelt, also got his start with Ken as his editor. He would completely cut through the BS, and I'd hear him in my head years later if I was overseas on deadline covering a war or conflict, here's Barkas in my head asking the so what question and how is this new and why would some listener in Miami or Des Moines want to hear this? Ken took immense pride in his Ohio roots and he championed coverage of his region, the Midwest. After years working at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C., he persuaded NPR to move his job instead to his native beloved Cleveland. That's where he and his wife, Ellen, raised their daughters, Julia and Kate. Here's Ken on NPR's Talk of the Nation in 2002, countering some stale misconceptions about the Midwest. The Cuyahoga River, which caught on fire, as you all know, in the 60s or 70s, the river that burns was the big joke for Cleveland, is a river that I now take my children out on kayaking, and we see eagles every time we go out. It's just different than the perception, different than the stereotype, and different than that old New Yorker cartoon of a flyover Midwest area. Ken really understood that 
not everything is as it appears in Washington. Marianne Zalesnik is news director at WVXU in Cincinnati. He felt it was really important to hear stories of people who are living their lives not on the coast, not in the biggest of cities, but just people living across the country. It was thanks to Ken's inspiration that NPR now has five regional bureau chiefs based all around the country. Among them, our Northeast bureau chief, Andrea De Leon. Most especially, I think he loved stories that were very human and that took us to places that we might not otherwise go. It wouldn't have to be exotic war zones. They could be much quieter places, but just sort of expanding how we see our country and our fellow Americans and our fellow humans. Outside of work, Ken loved to kayak and hike and bike. He raised chickens and adopted rescue dogs. His Cleveland yard was and is a glorious profusion of bloom. Oh my gosh, he has the most amazing garden. Annie Wu, with IdeaStream Public Media in Cleveland, lives nearby. There is a water feature of a bicycle where the water makes the tire spin. There's a tire swing off of a giant tree in his front yard, and he has always invited children around the neighborhood to swing on that. Which tells you something about Ken. He delighted in sharing both what he knew, he was a great source of gossip, and what he had. Random gifts, like the perfect tomato knife he once sent to Andrea de Leon, or the purple hyacinth bean seeds that Marianne Zalesnik found in her mail one day. This summer, in an email announcing his upcoming retirement, Ken said he wanted to be known as the king of moment of joy pieces. We are all so grateful. Melissa Block, NPR News. Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass would like to be the next president of the University of Florida. The school's search committee would like the same. But there are students at the University of Florida who do not want that. About 300 students protested outside a campus event where Sass took questions on Monday. Student organizations have criticized his conservative political positions, particularly his stance against gay marriage. Micaiah Seminera was at the protest yesterday. She's editor-in-chief of the University of Florida's independent newspaper, The Alligator. Micaiah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. Describe for us what you saw yesterday. Yeah, so the student forum was pretty much packed, maybe a few seats left open. And about 20 to 25 minutes before the student forum was supposed to end, we start to hear chanting from outside the door. People start banging on the walls outside of the forum's door, um, stomping in unison, because the protest that was originally outside Emerson Hall had moved inside the building, and about 300 protesters had now moved right outside the doors, but they were remaining shut. And did that forum actually end early due to the protesters? I think I might have read something about this. Yes. So the forum did end about 15 minutes early. Senator Sass and Lauren LeMasters, who's the student body president who was moderating, they both left. And at that point, the doors were opened and about 300 protesters surged in and kind of took control of the room and were chanting. We mentioned gay marriage. What are the main things student protesters are upset about? Yes. So gay marriage, I would say, is probably 
the main point that I've heard from speaking with protesters um, that day and in the days before. Specifically, Senator Sass has said in the past um, after Oberfeld v. Hodges, which is the Supreme Court case that federally protects um, the right to same-sex marriage, he called that a disappointment. So that statement has kind of resonated with a lot of people as being, you know, concerning to them. I think a main point also is just his status as a senator. A lot of people are unhappy that he's a politician. Based on social media and based on some concerns that I've you know, heard from some sources, it's very likely that a, a decent amount of the student body is, is upset with this. It's unlikely that the entire student body is uniform in its thinking. Have you heard from any students who are happy about SAS being picked as a potential president? Yes. So we have spoken to um, some conservative groups on campus who are content with Senator SAS's sole finalist status. We spoke with the UF College Republicans who put out a statement and said that they are, you know, largely happy with Senator SAS being the sole finalist. And they've pointed to his academic background. He has served as a president at a small university in Nebraska. What has Senator Sass himself said about the protest? So Senator Sass did address the protest in the moment, kind of in jest. He took it with uh, in stride. He made a joke about how they were chanting in rhythm, but he did say at the forum when the protesters were outside the door that although he does not agree with the protesters, he agrees with their constitutional right to be able to protest. Other than that, we haven't personally um, seen any statements from Senator Sass about the protest. That's Micaiah Seminera, editor-in-chief of The Alligator, the University of Florida independent student newspaper. Micaiah, thank you. Thank you. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival. It's back in Copley Square on October 29th with programs for teens and kids. Authors Tui Sutherland, B.B. Alston, Kristen Kishore, Melinda Lowe, Elizabeth Lim, Jason Chin, Brian Collier, and Equa Holmes. It's free thanks to sponsors like Simmons University. Details at bostonbookfest.org and CIC Innovation Campus, committed to creating an office space where talent wants to work. Flexible office space tours available at CIC.com enterprise. The answer to water-heavy crops could be hydroponic farming, but it's complicated. Because the labor and the capital of a greenhouse, for example, is so much more than the water cost is. I'm Rima Reis, a different way to farm. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The UN Human Rights Office says the latest deadly attack by Russia on Ukraine that killed at least 20 people could amount to war crimes. Russia launched the missile and drone attacks yesterday in retaliation for a weekend explosion that damaged a bridge linking Russia to the Crimean Peninsula. 
Speaking to reporters this afternoon, White House National Security Council Coordinator John Kirby says the U.S. and its allies will keep helping Ukrainian forces. What we're going to focus on is making sure that uh, that the Ukrainians can succeed on the battlefield, that they get the capabilities, the tools, the weapons they need to, to succeed on the battlefield so that when it comes to negotiations, uh, Mr. Zelensky uh, has the strongest hand possible. Kirby says so far there's no intelligence suggesting that Vladimir Putin has decided to use nuclear weapons in Ukraine after the Russian president warned that Western assistance would prolong the pain of Ukraine's people. The U.S. Supreme Court has overturned a lower court's ruling in a dispute over mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania, as NPR's Hansi Luong tells us, that move could lead to more election lawsuits in the key swing states. There's been a long-running saga in Pennsylvania about what to do with mail-in ballots that arrive on time to be counted but are missing something on the envelopes they're in, a date handwritten by the voter. Pennsylvania law requires those dates, but they are not used to verify whether a person is qualified to vote. Back in May, a lower federal court ruled that not counting those kinds of ballots would violate the Civil Rights Act. Now, the Supreme Court has overturned that ruling and ordered the lower court to dismiss the case, given that the Republican candidate who brought the case has since conceded the county judge's race where the ballots were in dispute. Hansi Luang, NPR News, Washington. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street as uh, the uh, trading week gets underway. The Dow actually gained 36 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Some local physicians are sounding the alarm over a shortage of clinicians in primary care. The shortage is one example of the many hits that health care in Massachusetts has taken in the pandemic. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo Hernandez has more. Primary care serves as a sort of front door to health care. A lot of the work involves preventing and managing illness. Burnout is at an all-time high. We saw 50 percent burnout prior to the pandemic, we're now at 71%. That's Katherine Jurgen-Barnett with the Department of Family Medicine at Boston Medical Center. She says increasing healthcare spending in primary care may help the specialty get back on track. We know that we spend about 5% of all healthcare dollars on primary care, but primary care sees 50% of visits. A nationwide survey this spring found high rates of early retirements and resignations by primary care doctors. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. A family-owned furniture store in Worcester is closing its doors after more than 60 years in business. Rotman's Furniture, Mattress and Accessory is expected to close by the end of the year. The 83-year-old owner, Steve Rotman, plans to retire. The store manager says about 44 people work at the store. The city of Boston is honoring a police officer who died of COVID-19 two and a half years ago. Today, city officials dedicated an honorary street sign in memory of Officer Jose Fontanez. The ceremony took place outside the Jamaica Plain Police Station, where he worked most of his 29-year career. The Boston native was 53 years old when he died. It's 434. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. And Ceres, a Boston-based nonprofit advocating for climate-smart policies and a net-zero economy. More at ceres.org/wbur. In sports, the Patriots could be without one of their top offensive playmakers for a while. Running back Damian Harris is likely to miss multiple games 
With an injury, according to the NFL Network, Harris hurt his hamstring in Sunday's win over the Lions. In the forecast, we'll have clear skies tonight. The lows will be around 48 degrees. Sunny tomorrow, the highs will be around 72. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Clavio, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. On TikTok, the hashtag dementia has three billion views. Caregivers for people with dementia have been flocking to the site. They're posting their experiences and finding support in the videos of others who understand. They're using the social media platform to show what dementia really looks like and to share the problems and burdens and joys of being a caregiver. In this week's All Tech Considered Story, Michigan Radio's Kate Wells explains how one woman's TikTok channel exploded in popularity and created a community. In this TikTok video, Jacqueline Revere is hiding out in her car, snagging some precious time just for herself. She puts up a quick post for her 650,000 followers. Hey, loved ones, I just wanted to say hi. Jacqueline's mom has dementia and can never be left alone. But today, someone else was watching her, and Jacqueline could run some errands and just breathe. And throughout this entire journey, sometimes I have to remind myself to just, like, chill out because I'm always trying to, like, fix a problem or catch something before it becomes a huge one. Jacqueline is 35 years old and lives in L.A., but during her 20s, she lived in New York. She was hustling, trying to break into comedy writing. She loved it. But then her mom started getting lost driving home from work. She'd forget to pay the mortgage. It was Alzheimer's. And Jacqueline is an only child. So she moved back to L.A. to care for her full time. This is something Elena Porticolone, who studies aging at UC San Francisco, sees all the time. Because uh, here in the United States, unfortunately, there is not a, a very strong system of support, of paid support for people with uh, dementia. There are more than 16 million people in the U.S. caring for someone with Alzheimer's and related dementias. More than two-thirds of those caregivers are women. And so the most common way of supporting persons with dementia is the daughter. Porto Colone says most of these women are not paid, and many like Jacqueline have to quit their jobs to be caregivers. It's isolating. And during the pandemic, the systems that are there to support caregivers, like the adult daycare center that Jacqueline's mom went to, shut down. Trapped at home seven days a week, Jacqueline's mom deteriorated even faster. So to cope, Jacqueline started posting short videos to TikTok about how they were getting through the days. Like this 2020 post about how she gives her mom a bath. It's bath day. I try my best not to make this an emotionally draining experience. (sighs) So let's begin. Giving someone with dementia a bath is actually really difficult and can even 
be dangerous. They can get disoriented or feel threatened when someone takes off their clothes or maneuvers them into a wet tub. They may slip and fall or even try to physically fight their caregiver. But Jacqueline is a bath pro. First, Jacqueline goes to get her mom. Well, good morning. How are you? Hi. That quiet hi you hear is Lynn, Jacqueline's mom. At this point, she's 63. It's about five years after her Alzheimer's diagnosis. And she's not speaking much, but Lynn is still gorgeous. She's tall and regal with great cheekbones. Lynn still loves to pick out her own clothes. She's wearing a purple beanie, gold hoops, pink lipstick, neon blue leggings. And Jacqueline starts off by promising her mom a present, but after the bath. We're going to get you some new lipstick. All right, let's start. Turn on the water. Jacqueline walks her audience through the process, sharing what works for them. Turn on the soul music, plug in the space heater, put the dog outside. Lure her into my cave. I'll see you guys after. Then the video cuts to after the bath. Lynn is dressed. They're celebrating with a dance party in the bathroom. We dance and we dance and we dance. When we're done, she gets a gift. At last, the sleek black tube of lipstick as promised. Lynn beams. I have a present. There you go, it's open. I opened it for you. Jacqueline could not believe this bath video got more than 20,000 views. The comments went nuts. People told Jacqueline how much they can relate, how they've made it through bath time with their parent or grandparent. And for years, Jacqueline had been so lonely, caring for her mom and their house and the bills and the doctors and insurance all on her own. But TikTok changed that. She posted a follow-up right away. How many of us are on here? I've been like looking for people my age that I can like relate to will have the same experience. People reached out from as far away as South Africa. She went from just a couple thousand followers to 650,000. They wanted to see her triumphs and the moments of total exhaustion. Y'all, I have never been so emotionally drained in my life. Bruh, caregiving eats your soul. It's constant mourning for years. Jacqueline also talks about their money troubles. They live in California, where Medicaid sometimes helps by giving full-time caregivers a stipend. Jacqueline got one, but she has still had to rent out rooms in their house to help make ends meet. And there are so many Jacquelines out there with few resources and almost no actual training. So they're just kind of winging it. Tipa Snow is a dementia expert. We know that there are so many younger people out there dealing with one form of brain change or another in their life, and they're left hanging. Tipa is an occupational therapist in North Carolina who has written books about dementia care. She also has a huge following on dementia TikTok. And Tipa says Alzheimer's and other dementias can be particularly isolating. Sometimes it feels to a family like the medical system is essentially saying, hey, your loved one has this type of dementia, there's no cure, eventually it's fatal, good luck. At this point in time, if we had five families dealing with dementia, four out of five would fall apart before the disease was ended. And so that person who's chosen to be the primary, they're all alone. They're truly all alone. So they turn to the internet. And Dementia TikTok provides community and advice, but it also helps capture how caregiving can be both tender and sad. Like in one video Jacqueline posted. They're in the sunny living room when Lynn starts calling her daughter Mommy. Mommy? Yes, baby? Mm -hmm. 
You calling me mommy? Lynn goes over to a photo of the two of them on the wall. It shows Lynn as a hot 80s mom in shoulder pads. And Jacqueline is just a chubby puffball of a baby in a lacy pink dress. Lynn correctly identifies herself in the photo, but then points at the baby and says that's her mommy. Yeah, cause this is me. That's you? And that's my mommy. Oh, that's me. So yes, you are right. That is your mommy. This post has more than 8 million views. And Jacqueline understands how powerful it is. The words may be switched or maybe it's not actually, like, cause the roles have switched. And so maybe she's right. Maybe she's understanding exactly how it is. But dementia TikTok also raises an ethical question. The people with dementia in these videos, almost none of them can give informed consent to being filmed. Many of their most vulnerable moments are now being watched by millions of strangers. Beth Kallmeyer is with the Alzheimer's Association. If I were talking to a family member that was considering doing this, those are the questions I would pose to them is to say, would they be comfortable with this? Is there a way for you to film something that gets the idea across but maintains their dignity? And it's not always so clear. Even Jacqueline has a post of her mom that she feels conflicted about. It has 27 million views, so it's actually the most watched video on her channel. So the other day, I found my mom walking around with a bottle of mouthwash, and she was sipping out of it. And this is how I handled this situation. I started by trying to explain why you can't... Lynn had gotten past the locks on the bathroom cabinets. Jacqueline tries to explain to her mom why she can't drink mouthwash, but Lynn doesn't want to let the mouthwash go. As many caregivers know, Jacqueline has to keep this moment from escalating into a big fight. May I have it, please? Please? Thank you so much, and I'm going to replace it with something else that's going to taste even better, all right? Some of the comments on this post were really different from the reactions her videos normally get. Some of them called Jacqueline's mom an alcoholic or said she looked scary. It made Jacqueline feel protective. But in the end, she decided not to take the video down. She says it is still a good example for caregivers of redirection, showing how to steer a loved one away from a risky situation. And that's who she's making these videos for, the caregivers, not the trolls. And then, this past spring in March, Jacqueline posted another video. Hey y'all, I just wanted to come in and tell y'all that that mommy passed. She passed on Sunday night and that's really all I have for now. So lift us up in prayer. But mommy is dancing in heaven now. Lynn had died of cardiac arrest at the age of 65. Jacqueline had always assumed that when her mom died, she'd have to mourn her alone. But on TikTok, the messages poured in. People were checking in on her, sending her gifts, sharing their favorite videos of Lynn. It's been the least lonely that I've ever been throughout this entire experience, actually. It's not my lonely journey anymore. Now it's everyone's. Jacqueline was her mom's caregiver for six years, from the age of 29 to 35. Now she's trying to figure out who she is when she's not caring for her mom. She's dating, traveling, seeing friends, and grieving. But one thing she knows is she still wants to keep connecting with dementia caregivers, especially ones who don't have huge followings like she does. Because that's what I need most, just 
to know that life isn't passing me by and I'm not seen. Um, I just want to make sure that they feel seen. Jacqueline made hundreds of posts for the dementia community on TikTok. And she takes comfort in knowing they will always be up there for new caregivers to find and maybe feel a little less alone. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Michigan Radio and Kaiser Health News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and anxiety. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. And this is All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. 66 degrees in Boston at 448. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll have a conversation with Roger Bennett. He's the co-author of Gods of Soccer, the pantheon of the 100 greatest soccer players. That's ahead here on WBUR. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Listen to the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out the door to work. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at Prompt.com. And the Boston Globe, presenting Boston's all-documentary film festival in theaters and online October 12th through 16th. The 8th Annual Globe Docs Film Festival features screenings and conversation with Boston Globe journalists and filmmakers. Tickets available at globe.com slash filmfest. Tomorrow on WBUR's Morning Edition, Russian troops currently occupy Europe's largest nuclear power plant in central Ukraine. Experts are worried the takeover could trigger a meltdown, something that already happened 300 miles northwest in Chernobyl. What the Ukrainians who survived and live with the aftermath of Chernobyl say about the looming threat of another nuclear disaster. Start your day with Rupa Shinoy and WBUR's Morning Edition starting at 5 a.m. tomorrow. WBUR supporters include Bentley University's Executive Ph.D. in Business, a part-time doctoral program for professionals who want data-driven research skills to solve today's business challenges. The Boston Philharmonic with Benjamin Zander and pianist Jonathan Biss, Beethoven and Rachmaninoff at Symphony Hall, October 19th, bostonphil.org, and Beacon Hill Books and Cafe with programming for book lovers of all ages in a 19th-century townhouse in the heart of historic Beacon Hill, now open at 71 Charles Street. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with a reminder that this public radio station is a collaboration. Many of my colleagues are working in the middle of the night to bring you the latest information when you get up in the morning. You don't have to do that, but you can contribute in other ways like donating your old car. Turn your old car into Morning Edition, all things considered, and all the voices you trust. There's never been a more important time to strengthen your station. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Soccer lovers, you know who you are. Get ready. 
the 2022 World Cup is nearly upon us. This year's tournament kicks off next month in Qatar. It's quite a departure from the usual summertime event. And here to get us in the mood for the World Cup is Men in Blazers host Roger Bennett. He is also co-author of a new book called Gods of Soccer, which catalogs the game's 100 greatest players ever, men and women. Roger Bennett, so good to speak to you. Oh, Mary Louise Kelly, it is a joy to be with you. I do love that you acknowledge right up at the front, I think it's the first page, this is your quote, some folks are going to foam and fume at our idiocy, which can be the only plausible explanation (laughs) as to why your favorite player is not included. You're acknowledging people are going to argue about this and that's going to be part of the fun. Yeah, 100 is ridiculous. There's a a football manager, Jurgen Klopp, who says football is the world's most important, least important thing. And to me, that's its joy. So we wanted to stake out our position to tell 100 incredible stories that are told with joy and wonder and reverence, stories of, of endurance, of tenacity, of glory, and then defend that position with the heat of a thousand suns. So how did you pick? What's the methodology here? You have your Pelés, you have your Maradonas, whose career was like the last scene of Scarface lived out on a football field. You have your Mia Hams, true legends. But we also argued about, and I hope that in reading the book, young readers will revel in these arguments about the more obscure, but equally as remarkable, Matthias Sindelar, a pre-war Austrian great who was rumored to have been murdered by the Nazis because of his friendship with Austrian Jews. Brianna Scurry, who rose from Minnesota, playing as the only African-American woman on white teams to become the first African-American woman in the National Soccer Hall of Fame. And players like Garincha, oft-forgotten Brazilian great, who won two World Cups, the greatest dribbler that's ever played the game, even though one of his legs was six centimeters shorter than the other. These are the tales, the truly great, and the ones that we pulled out of obscurity and shone a light on uh, that make make up the book. Only two of the players, only two of the male players who made the cut for your list are actually going to be playing in the World Cup next month. This would be Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo. Uh, That is true. The only two from the book who are going to be there but what a pair. Yeah. So Messi, that normal guy in a world in which we love our athletes, almost be demigods. Messi looks like he's just wandered out of your local supercuts. Five foot six, squat, scruffy. Eduardo Galliano, the Uruguayan poet, said about him that Maradona may have played as if the ball was glued to his shoe. Lionel Messi plays as if it was stuck inside his sock. And Ronaldo, really the Borg to his McEnroe, the Fisher to his Spassky, a Adonis, a petulant show pony, a man who we write about in the book who looks like a robot who's been programmed to score goal after goal solely so that he can take off his shirt and reveal his abs to an adoring world. And they are both in there. And this will probably be their last World Cup. And the joy of a World Cup is, like nature, we abhor a vacuum. Mary Louise, there will be new heroes forged who we're not even talking about right now, but the whole world will know their name come December. Before we get to them, just to stay with Messi and Ronaldo, neither of them has ever won. Where do you put the odds that one of them might take it home this time? Well, one of them may play the United States in the final. That is certain, but I am not going to tell you who will win that game for spoiler alert reasons. Argentina are truly, truly a fantastic team. He has often struggled. Lionel Messi, 
undoubtedly, to me, the world's greatest footballer. But playing for the Argentine team, the weight of the shirt has almost felt, the pressure has almost felt like chainmail dragging him down. But something has happened uh, in this cycle, and he is delivering just transcendent moments of poetry, a poet warrior uh, for his nation. And if it was of the two, um, I would, if I was a betting man, I'd be putting all my pesos on Argentina. On Argentina. Um, this World Cup's going to be a big one for the U.S. men's team who failed to qualify, didn't show up, didn't get to play at all the last time around. Um, what are you watching for this time? The reaction to failure in 2018, a true shame for our nation, um, has been remarkable. A wave of young footballers in their teens decided, almost as a reaction to that failure, that they had to leave the United States. And if they were to fulfill their potential, they had to test themselves against the best, playing for the best in Europe. And so we have this unprecedented wave of baby eagles, young talents who are playing for some of the greatest teams in the world for the first time in our nation's history. We have players at Juventus, the Italian powerhouse, Chelsea, Christian Pulisic, Tyler Adams, Leeds United dominating in the Premier League. The team itself remains a work in progress. It is so young, really is like a team of babies. We are hosting the World Cup in 2026, along with Mexico and Canada. And this World Cup almost comes too soon for them. It will be a test, a crucible, from which hopefully, like any hero's journey, they will learn important lessons that ultimately lead to glory. Hmm. All right, so 10 years from now, let's say you and I are back here. We're a little grayer, we're a little wiser. <laughs> we're on the 17th edition of your book. <laughs> Who do you have your eye on in this World Cup, and who who might be the next great rivalry? Because, you know, you look at Messi, you look at Ronaldo, you look at such different players, as you say, but they made each other better. They were at their peak at the same time, and they made each other raise their game. Anybody like that? Oh, I love your question for so many reasons, mostly because by telling me that we'll have grayed a little, you're suggesting that I will have hair, <laughs> which is... <laughs> Almost a human miracle. I will be as blonde as ever. So we're in the same boat. <laughs> Bald, blonde. Here we are. Uh, yeah, the joy of the World Cup is that heroes can be forged out of nowhere. If you were to think of young players whose names we will be absolutely turning to ballads and tapestries after this World Cup, it will be a player whom Mbappe is having a rivalry with at the club level and will at the international level, please God, for at least a decade to come. Vinicius Jr., a 22-year-old Brazilian blur who plays for Real Madrid, a gent who has a superpower of bending time and space to his will. Watching his Brazil, who are the favourites for this World Cup, they seem to be the favourites for every single World Cup. Their golden shirts just made for television and glorious technicolour against France, the holders, defending champions, looking to defend their title and become just the third team to do that. The Mbappe-Vinicius Jr. Uh, conflict is one it, it is one of the sole kinds of conflicts that actually makes the world better just by watching. That is Men in Belizers. Host Roger Bennett, his new book is called Gods of Soccer. It is out now. Roger Bennett, thank you. Courage. Oh, Mary Louise Kelly, just hearing you say that word makes me feel so much better. Courage. 
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from LifeLock by Norton, working to help consumers protect themselves against identity theft. Learn more at lifelock.com NPR. From Insperity, providing HR services for 30-plus years, including access to employee benefits and payroll. Insperity's mission is to help businesses succeed so communities prosper. Insperity, HR that makes a difference. From Culligan Water, since 1936, committed to providing cleaner and safer filtered water on demand while working to help reduce the number of plastic bottles going into landfills. Learn more at Culligan.com. And from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR. Boston's NPR news station. Many in D.C. view the Saudis now as aligning themselves with Russia at a time when reduced Russian energy exports are plunging much of the world into an energy crisis. A coalition of oil-producing nations led in part by Saudi Arabia is slashing oil production. This is not sitting well in Washington. It's Tuesday, October 11th. This is All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. Ahead, the cut in oil production could be a turning point in U.S.-Saudi relations. Also, closing arguments have started in the Parkland Shooters trial. He's pleaded guilty to killing 17 people at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and could potentially receive the death sentence. And over the weekend, the NFL and its Players Union announced a change to the league's concussion policy after a high-profile incident involving a star Miami Dolphins quarterback. It's 5.01. Now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The United States and the world's other leading democracies are pledging continued support to Ukraine in the face of increased airstrikes from Russia. As NPR's Tamara Keith reports, the G7 leaders met virtually today. Unity among the G7 leaders was the key message from a joint statement released after the call. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky joined the meeting. The nation's pledged to continue to impose further economic costs on Russia for its aggression, and also committed to providing financial, humanitarian, military, diplomatic, and legal support to Ukraine. G7 members say they'll stand firm, quote, for as long as it takes. Zelensky, according to a transcript of his remarks released by Ukraine, again asked for air defense systems to protect against Russian airstrikes. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby said the U.S. has provided air defenses to Ukraine and will provide more, but he didn't offer details. Tamara Keith, NPR News, the White House. A recording that captured crude and racist remarks made by Los Angeles City Council President Nuri Martinez has resulted in her stepping down with an angry crowd disrupting proceedings today. Some shouting demands Martinez and the other two council members involved resign immediately from the body. Other council members at today's session called for the same thing. Council President Pro Tem Mitch O'Farrell called for the three to resign and for the election of a new L.A. City Council president next week. 
Angela Lansbury, a beloved star of television, screen, and stage, has died at the age of 96 at her home in Los Angeles. She had a varied career, though she was perhaps best known for her role as Jessica Fletcher in the long-running CBS TV series Murder, She Wrote. Lansbury also appeared in movies and on Broadway. Jeff London has this remembrance. Angela Lansbury was born in London and moved with her mother to the U.S. during the Battle of Britain in 1940, eventually settling in Hollywood. She appeared on screen in Gaslight, which she followed up with, among others, the portrait of Dorian Gray, the Harvey Girls, and the Manchurian Candidate. In 1966, Lansbury starred on Broadway in Maine. She won the first of her six Tony Awards. Light the candles She also won for Gypsy and Sweeney Todd, but it was as Jessica Fletcher, the mystery novelist in TV's Murder, She Wrote, that Lansbury became a household name. Her career stretched over seven decades. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. The International Monetary Fund is downgrading its outlook for the global economy next year, citing a laundry list of threats, including Russia's war against Ukraine. The 190-country lending agency forecasting the global economy will eke out growth of just 2.7% next year, down from a previous estimate of and this year's 3.2% number. On Wall Street today, the Dow was down 36 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. A Rhode Island man convicted of kidnapping and killing a Boston woman was sentenced today to life in federal prison without parole. Lewis Coleman was convicted in June of luring Jazzy Correa away from a Boston nightclub in 2019, where the young mother was celebrating her 23rd birthday. Days later, police in Delaware pulled Coleman over and discovered Correa's body in his trunk. In a statement, the head of the Boston FBI calls today's sentencing just, but goes on to say it cannot erase the harm that Coleman inflicted. Lobster fishermen in Maine have hired a former federal official to represent them in their federal court case challenging new fishing restrictions. The federal rules are designed to protect endangered whales from entanglement. Former U.S. Solicitor General Paul Clement will represent the Maine Lobstermen's Association. He has argued dozens of cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. Gasoline prices in Massachusetts have risen for the first time in 16 weeks. According to AAA, the average price of a gallon of gas rose 10 cents in the past week to $3.58. AAA's Mark Shieldrop says there are a number of factors at play here. The reason why we're seeing these higher prices right now is due to higher oil prices and stronger demand. Maybe folks are doing a bit of uh, additional leaf peeping the the past couple weeks here in Massachusetts. Shieldrop adds that historically low supplies of oil and gas around the world are also contributing to rising prices. The Boston Symphony Orchestra has launched a new program designed to address historic racial inequities in the classical music field. An annual fellowship program began this fall. Two early career musicians from underrepresented groups will spend the symphony season performing with the BSO. Gail Samuel is the orchestra's president. The representation of different voices actually adds to um, our creativity. So as we look to welcome more audiences into our hall, I think it's really important that, that people be able to see themselves on stage. Samuel says the fellows will receive mentorship from orchestra members. In the forecast, we'll have clear skies tonight. The lows will be around 48 degrees. It should be sunny tomorrow. The highs near 72. Partly sunny on Thursday. Chance of showers later in the afternoon. The highs will be around 71 degrees. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering internet service over a gig, designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. And BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Tomorrow, jurors in Florida will begin deliberating whether the gunman who killed 17 people at Marjory Stoneman Douglas High School should live or die for the crimes. Nicholas Cruz already pleaded guilty to the 2018 killings. For the past three months, the prosecution and defense have made their cases to jurors. That process ended today with closing arguments in the trial. The jury, considering Cruz's sentence now has just two options, life in prison or the death penalty. And Pierce Greg Allen joins us from the courthouse in Fort Lauderdale. Hey, Greg. Hi, Mary Louise. Um, before we get to the legal arguments and all that, I, I do want to focus on the families, uh, many of whom I gather have showed up for a lot of this trial. How are they doing? How are they handling it? Well, there clearly have been some tough days for family members here. You know, the, this as this has gone forward, they've heard detailed descriptions of how each of the 14 students and three staff members died. Those were certainly tearful days. Some were there to see the surveillance video showing Cruz's rampage through the school. That was difficult. And some heard the testimony of medical examiners about the horrific wounds inflicted by Cruz's AR-15 style rifle. But many of the families have been outspoken about their desire to see Cruz receive the death penalty. I think some see it as their duty on behalf of their loved ones to be here to see justice done. Okay. Uh, What is the prosecution's case that this should be the death penalty that is handed to Cruz? Well, Prosecutor Mike Satz talked to the jury today about evidence that Cruz spent several months planning the shooting at the Parkland High School. He talked about searches Cruz conducted on his computer, about previous school massacres. Cruz even did a search for how long does it take cops to respond to a school shooting. Satz told the jury there's clear evidence that what happened in 2018 was, in his words, quote, cold, calculated, and premeditated. This plan was goal-directed, it was calculated, it was purposeful, and it was a systematic massacre. Greg, are there instructions to the jury that they have to take into account in deciding what to, to do here, what penalty to apply? Yes, the judge will be giving the jury instructions tomorrow, but they've already discussed this idea about aggravating and mitigating factors. Under Florida law, the jury has to decide whether aggravating factors outweigh the mitigating factors in if they're going to give the death penalty. And if the murders are cold, calculated, and premeditated, as we just discussed, if that's one aggravating factor, prosecutors want jurors to consider several others, the fact that multiple murders were carried out, the fact that they were done at a school, and that they were done in a way that was especially, quote, heinous, atrocious, or cruel. And to that point, the jury heard horrific testimony from survivors about the terror they experienced that day of the shooting. Uh, Jurors also watched surveillance videos showing Cruz returning the victims he wounded and shooting them again in many cases, killing them. So in the face of that, what arguments are Cruz's attorneys making? Well, this is a very difficult case, as you you certainly understand it, because the horrific nature of the murders and the, the huge impact it's had here in South Florida. 
Cruz's defense attorneys have tried to turn the page from the murderers, saying he, he pled guilty to those murderers. He's, he's, taking his, he's accepting his guilt for that. They've instead tried to focus this on Cruz's troubled personal history. And that's a history that started when his birth mother, mother Brenda Woodard, abused alcohol and cocaine while she was pregnant with him. Cruz's defense lawyers have relied on medical experts to make the case that he suffers from fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. Here's his attorney, Melissa McNeil. You now know that Nicholas is a brain-damaged, broken, mentally ill person through no fault of his own. He was literally poisoned in Brenda's womb. Uh, they, these are all consequences of Cruz's mental impairment, she says, of FASD, his problems uh, in school and elsewhere. And they say that's reason to give him not death, but life in prison without possibility of parole. All right. And here's Greg Allen reporting for us from the courthouse in Fort Lauderdale. Thank you, Greg. You're welcome. President Biden is re-evaluating the U.S.-Saudi relationship after last week's decision by OPEC Plus to slash two million barrels a day of oil production. That's according to John Kirby, spokesman for the National Security Council, speaking today. In light of the recent decision by OPEC and Saudi Arabia's leadership, he does believe that this is a, a good time to reevaluate and see what that relationship ought to, ought to look like going forward. Analysts say the breach created by these production cuts could be a turning point in U.S.-Saudi relations. NPR International Affairs correspondent Jackie, Jackie Northam reports. It wasn't just the sheer size of the cut in oil production by OPEC+. It was also the timing, coming about three months after President Biden visited Saudi Arabia to lobby against such a reduction. And just ahead of the midterm elections here in the U.S., where prices at the gas pump could have an effect on voters. Jonathan Panikoff is director of the Scowcroft Middle East Security Initiative at the Atlantic Council. It feels punitive against the Biden administration, and I think it's hard to think it's otherwise because the Saudis aren't naive about the U.S. political situation. It may not have been the core reason for doing it, but they absolutely were happy to do it. Faraz Maksad, a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute, says Saudi Arabia has legitimate business reasons for the cut. They're seeking higher prices now in case a global recession reduces demand later. And he says that despite concerted U.S. attempts to talk them out of a production cut, all 24 members of OPEC Plus were on board with it. This is a decision that was not just Saudi. It was unanimous and it was driven by economics and market dynamics rather than, than politics. Russia is co-chair of OPEC Plus. Its deputy prime minister, Alexander Novak, who is sanctioned by the U.S., sat at the table when the cuts were announced. The production cuts mean higher revenue for Russia to support the war in Ukraine. Jason Bordoff is director of Columbia University's Center on Global Energy Policy. Many in D.C. view the Saudis now as aligning themselves with Russia at a time when Russian troops are killing Ukrainians and reduced Russian energy exports are plunging much of the world into an energy crisis. The Atlantic Council's Panikoff says this incident represents a profound shift in U.S.-Saudi relations, and much of that has to do with Saudi's de facto leader, Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. I don't think we fully accepted the notion that he is a different leader than we've ever dealt with, and so we're going to have to have a different relationship. Panikoff says the Crown Prince is a transactional leader and that the U.S. will have to decide if it wants to spend time and energy rebuilding its strategic relationship with the kingdom or become more transactional as well. Panikoff says that could affect Saudi Arabia's security guarantees. 
maybe we don't sell the more advanced aircraft. Maybe the training exercises are on older generation hardware. And maybe, yes, we remove some Patriot batteries and say, look, we recognize your security. We're not trying to diminish it. We have to balance our security goals as well. Some members of Congress want to freeze weapon sales to Saudi Arabia or to initiate price-fixing cases against OPEC+. But Maksad, with the Middle East Institute, says the Gulf region is no longer beholden to the U.S. and has the right to look for other options. And so they are building bridges to China, which, by the way, accounts for over a quarter of oil exports from Saudi Arabia, and also with Russia that had been sort of expanding its role in the Middle East. Today, the Saudi foreign minister, Farhan bin Faisal, said Saudi Arabia's ties with the U.S. are strategic and have advanced the security and stability in the region, and that the oil cut was made purely for economic reasons. Jackie Northam, NPR News, Washington. Israel and Lebanon have ended their longtime dispute over where to draw their border at sea. The U.S. mediated the deal between the two enemies. President Biden called it a historic breakthrough. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports from Tel Aviv on what prompted the deal. The U.S. says it's the first time Israel and Lebanon have ever mutually agreed on a border between them. Israeli Prime Minister Yair Lapid echoed President Biden, calling it historic. He said Israel has been trying to reach this deal for more than 10 years and that it will strengthen the security of northern Israel. The matter in dispute was who gets natural gas fields off the Mediterranean coast. One is in disputed waters. Another is in Israeli waters, where Lebanon laid a new claim two years ago. Israel recently made moves to extract gas there, and Lebanese militant group Hezbollah made threats of war. The details haven't been officially announced, but reportedly the two sides compromised on the borderline. Israel will extract gas from one field, and Lebanon will explore for gas in the other potential field, with the U.S. and Israel saying Lebanon will share some of the revenues. Lebanon's chief negotiator, Elias Boussab, says the deal satisfies both sides. He said it would provide economic stability and some hope to Lebanese, with their economy in crisis and an electric grid that often provides just a couple hours of power a day. For Lebanon, it is a good deal. Lebanese-American Randa Slim is a senior fellow at the Middle East Institute in Washington. It removes a source of tension and it opens prospects for Lebanon, economic prospects. And we don't know how much gas there is, but still, even if some gas gets out, it can be used in the Lebanese domestic market and it can provide a source of revenue for a country whose economy is in major dire straits right now. She thinks it could pave the way for negotiations over their land border now. Former Deputy Israeli Navy Chief Shaul Chorev also thinks it's a step forward. Once you have uh, such an agreement, it is the beginning of uh, normalization, the relationships between us and Lebanon. But former Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the deal is a capitulation to Hezbollah. And with Israeli elections just three weeks away, he says he won't consider himself beholden to the deal if he's voted back into office. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv.
Misinformation about abortion surged after a leak revealed that the U.S. Supreme Court was preparing to overturn Roe v. Wade, particularly on Spanish-language social media. Doctors worry that misinformation will discourage Latino people from seeking reproductive medical care. Listen for that story tomorrow on Morning Edition, on your radio, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown, 66 degrees in Boston at 519. Ahead on All Things Considered, we'll hear from author Kendra Neely about her debut graphic novel, Numb to This, a memoir of a mass shooting. That's ahead here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Book Festival, presenting 200 authors in person in Copley Square on Saturday, October 29th. Details at bostonbookfest.org. In business news, Massachusetts-based BJ's Wholesale Club has completed its move to a new corporate headquarters. The company is now housed in Marlboro, about five miles from its old headquarters in Westboro. About 1,000 employees are expected to work at the new facility. They'll provide support to the company's gas stations, distribution centers, and 231 clubs in 18 states. On Wall Street today, stocks were mixed. The Dow was up 0.12% to close at 29,239. NASDAQ was down 1.1% at 10,426. And the S&P 500 closed down 0.65% at 3589. Marketplace will have all the business news coming up at 6.30 here on WBUR. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are working for people and families living with sickle cell disease and other serious diseases. Committed to helping you make a difference and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Looks like we'll have a nice night tonight. Clear skies, the low around 48 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow. The highs will be around 72. Right now it's 65 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from UMA, a cloud based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. The NFL is under scrutiny yet again over concussions. This weekend, the league announced a change to its concussion policy after a dramatic hit against a star quarterback. Will that change be enough to protect its players? NPR's Becky Sullivan is here to catch us up on this debate. Hi, Becky. Hey there. What happened with this quarterback? Yeah, so this most recent round of talk about concussions started in the last few weeks after Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungo-Vailoa took a hit in a Sunday game against the Buffalo Bills. 
He looked a little wobbly for a moment afterward, but he was cleared by doctors and came back to the game. And then he was allowed to come back for the Dolphins' next game the following Thursday night, so just four days later. In that second game, he took a big tackle. His head hit the ground hard, showed very obvious signs of concussion, had to be carted off the field. And afterward, there were a lot of criticism about how this guy could have been allowed to play after seemingly wobbling around just a few days before. And how has the NFL responded to all this? Well, over the weekend, the league and the players union released a joint investigation about the incident and they announced this change in the concussion policy, as you were saying. Uh, the investigation essentially showed that the league's old protocol was followed and that Tua didn't show any signs of con any symptoms of a concussion when he was being evaluated, nor in the days afterward. So the change to the policy is that players cannot return to a game if they show ataxia, which is the medical term for the kind of trouble with balance or stability that you see with concussions. Previously, players could go back if there was another explanation for the unsteadiness. Uh, and in Tua's case, they had said it was a back injury. And Becky, is there any consensus on how much time NFL players should be taking to recover from a concussion? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of differences in concussion studies, but uh, the NFL's top medical advisor said this weekend that the median time away from the field for players with a concussion is nine days. Broadly speaking, that does fit with current concussion research. I talked to Christopher DeLauro. He's a cognitive neuroscientist at the Air Force Academy who said that sounds about right to him. He said elite athletes like NFL players generally recover faster than normal people for concussions for a lot of reasons, um, two of which are that first, these guys are incredibly fit and healthy, which likely helps them to recover faster. And second, they have access to around the clock medical care. Uh, and then the other thing that he emphasized is that concussions can just be really hard to diagnose. You can't just test for it like you can for strep throat. You go take your kids to the pediatrician and they do the rapid strep and it's like, you're good or you're not. There's nothing like that for concussions. It's all clinician judgment. So it is pretty hard. Essentially, it's a tough job for doctors out there. That's NPR's Becky Sullivan. Thank you. You're welcome. Angela Lansbury, the beloved star of television, screen, and stage, has died. She was 96. Although she was best known for her role as Jessica Fletcher in the long-running CBS TV series Murder, She Wrote, Lansbury had a distinguished career in the movies and on Broadway. Jeff London has this appreciation. Angela Lansbury was destined to become an actress. Born in London, England in 1925, her mother was a leading lady of the British stage, and Lansbury got the bug as a teenager, playing Audrey in a student production of As You Like It. She told Terry Gross on Fresh Air in 2000 that appearing on stage was intoxicating. I suddenly got the feel and the smell of being able to make an effect by the way I played the role, the way I comported myself, all of the physical aspects of acting suddenly came to me and I got a laugh, you know, the first time I did it. With the Battle of Britain raging, Lansbury and her mother moved to the United States in 1940 and settled in Hollywood two years later. She got her first screen role as the saucy housemaid Nancy in Gaslight, directed by George Cukor, when she was just a teenager. And whom are you going to the musical with? Gentleman friends, sir. Oh, now you know, Nancy, don't you? That gentleman friends are sometimes inclined to take liberties with young ladies. Oh, no, sir. Not with me. I can take care of myself when I want to. Angela Lansbury got an Oscar nomination for her performance in Gaslight and appeared in many more films, from the picture of Dorian Gray to the Harvey Girls, often playing women much older than she actually was. 
I was never going to get to play the girl next door and I was never going to be groomed to be a glamorous movie star. And I sort of realized that, so I had to make peace with myself on that score. Perhaps her most memorable Hollywood performance was as the evil mother of the brainwashed Lawrence Harvey in The Manchurian Candidate in 1962. You are to shoot the presidential nominee through the head and Johnny will rise gallantly to his feet and lift Ben Arthur's body in his arms and stand in front of the microphones and begin to speak. Lansbury moved to New York to star on Broadway and scored an enormous triumph in Jerry Herman's Mame in 1966, says theater historian Lawrence Maslon. Angela Lansbury really threw herself in front of the bus to get that part. And lo and behold, when she walked down that staircase in gold lame pajamas in 1966, she was 40 years old. And Broadway embraced her in a way that it has embraced few actresses in its storied history. Light the candles, get the ice out, roll the rug up, it's today. Angela Lansbury said she was a bit surprised to find a real home in musical theater. Because I'm not really a singer. I have a serviceable voice. But how I use it, it's the emotion under the note that sells the song. That way of acting a song served Lansbury very well. When she starred as Mama Rose in the 1974 revival of Gypsy, and as the cold-blooded Mrs. Lovett who bakes human beings into meat pies in Stephen Sondheim's 1979 masterpiece Sweeney Todd. She told NPR in 2005 that Sweeney Todd's success was anything but certain when it began preview performances in New York. People were appalled by the blood that was splattering at them from the stage. They felt that Stephen had gone a step too far. But my goodness, there was another two-thirds of the audience who hadn't seen it yet who arrived at the theater. And they just took it to their hearts. And, they, and of course, to make a long story short, we won the Tony that year. So that was the thing that launched us. The worst pies in London, even that's polite, the worst pies in London. If you doubt it, take a bite. Is that just disgusting? In the 1980s, Angela Lansbury moved back to Hollywood to star in the mystery television series Murder, She Wrote. The CBS show lasted 12 seasons and made Angela Lansbury a household name as a senior citizen. She told Fresh Air's Terry Gross that she was happily trapped in the role of Jessica Fletcher, the mystery novelist who solved a murder every week. Being Jessica was second nature to me because she embodied all of the qualities that I like about women. She was uh, valiant and uh, liberal and uh, athletic and exciting and sexy and all kinds of good stuff that women are of a certain age and are not given credit for. For NPR News, I'm Jeff London in New York. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown. Coming up on All Things Considered, 
Conspiracy theorists want to get rid of voting machines, but research has found hand counting to be less accurate and more expensive. That story and more just ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater. Celebrate the grand reopening of the historic Huntington Theater and the legacy of August Wilson with Joe Turner's Come and Gone, a story of resurrection during the Great Migration, in this new production helmed by director Lillianne Brown. Performances start Friday. HuntingtonTheater.org Only two places in the world have seen the highest level of nuclear catastrophe. One of them is Chernobyl in Ukraine, where operators fear the Russian bombardment could replicate a disaster that's poisoned the countryside. I'm scared. I'll be honest, very, very scared. A visit with the people who live and work at Chernobyl. Tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. Tomorrow morning at 5 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. The White House says its fall COVID-19 booster campaign is going well and should pick up over the coming weeks. Back in September, the U.S. started rolling out the updated COVID shots redesigned to take on both the Omicron subvariants as well as the original version of the virus. Here's White House COVID response coordinator Dr. Ashish Jha. In terms of when's a good time to get vaccinated, I've been very clear about this. I think people should go get vaccinated before Halloween. Why Halloween? Uh, because it takes a couple of weeks for your immune system to you know, kind of generate the benefit from that vaccine. And that means you will be ready by Thanksgiving and certainly by the holidays. Dr. Jha says the initial pace of people getting the booster shots is a really good start, but hopes more people take advantage of the shots now and anyone age 12 and older is eligible. The U.N. Human Rights Office says the latest Russian missile attacks on Ukraine could amount to war crimes. As Lisa Schlein reports from Geneva, U.N. monitors will continue to verify civilian casualties and document any violations. U.N. monitors report the series of attacks which appear to have been coordinated targeted at least 12 energy facilities. Human rights spokeswoman Ravina Shamdasani says some of these facilities may be indispensable for the survival of the civilian population during the cold winter months ahead. We have to stress that intentionally directing attacks against civilians and civilian objects that is objects which are not military objectives uh, amount to a war crime. Shamdasani adds the location and timing of the strikes when people were commuting to work and taking children to school is particularly shocking. For NPR News, I'm Lisa Schlein in Geneva. Stocks finished mixed on Wall Street today ahead of key reports on inflation and another round of corporate earnings. The Dow up one-tenth of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu says she's considering vetoing pay raises the city council approved last week for the mayor's office and for the councilors. She says she's concerned by the scale and the timing of the 20% pay hikes. The mayor had proposed roughly 11% pay raises. If she vetoes the raises, city council could still make them a reality with a two-thirds vote to override. The head of the MBTA is scheduled to testify on the transit system's recent safety problems this Friday before a U.S. Senate subcommittee. Senator Elizabeth Warren said today that T. General Manager Steve Poftak has accepted her invitation to appear at a hearing that day in Boston. 
Senate Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs Committee's Subcommittee on Economic Policy. We'll also hear from leaders of the state's Department of Public Utilities and the Federal Transit Administration. The Steamship Authority says it may have to trim its ferry service to Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. That's because federal regulators are proposing to extend vessel speed limits into Vineyard and Nantucket sounds. The proposal is designed to protect endangered right whales from potentially deadly ship strikes. WBUR's Josie Garino reports. The proposal calls for seasonal speed zones to expand to the waters between Cape Cod and the islands between December and late May. The Steamship Authority's Sean Driscoll says if the proposal goes through, its high-speed ferry from Hyannis to Nantucket would be eliminated during the restriction period, and there will be fewer trips to the islands. Having to go from three round trips a day by each vessel to two round trips per day on the Nantucket route, which would be a significant reduction in service and a significant impairment to our ability to provide necessities of life to the people who live on that island. Driscoll says ferries have not spotted right whales on its routes. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. The state is seeking applicants for its Cannabis Social Equity Advisory Board. The five-member board is appointed by the governor, the state treasurer, and the Massachusetts attorney general. Its job will be to consult with state officials who administer the Cannabis Social Equity Trust Fund. The fund was established to encourage participation in the legal marijuana industry by communities that have been disproportionately harmed by past state marijuana laws. Applications for the board are due by November 1st. It's 535. WBUR supporters include the Boston Globe, presenting Boston's all-documentary film festival in theaters and online October 12th through 16th. The 8th Annual Globe Docs Film Festival features screenings and conversation with Boston Globe journalists and filmmakers. Tickets available at globe.com slash filmfest. In sports, the Bruins will open up their regular season tomorrow night when they take on the Capitals down in Washington. In the forecast, we'll have clear skies tonight. The lows will be around 48 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow. The highs around 72. Partly sunny on Thursday. Chance of some showers after 3 o'clock. The highs will be around 71 degrees. Right now, it's 65 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Humans are not as good as machines when it comes to certain tasks. That includes counting things over and over and over. And that's a big reason why election officials, especially those in large counties, use machines to help them count ballots. Over the past few years, though, there's been a push on the far right to move back to hand counting ballots. NPR voting correspondent Miles Parks has been following that push. Hey, Miles. Hey there. Where is this happening? 
So conspiracies around machines have been festering for the last couple of years. It's a big talking point for people like my pillow founder, Mike Lindell, and people in his circle who say that some sort of algorithm flipped votes in 2020. Now, we know, obviously, that is not the case. Mm -hmm. But the idea is get rid of the computers and you'll get rid of whatever fraud happened there. The epicenter of this movement in the U.S. seems at this point to be Nevada, where election denier Republican Jim Marchant is running to be secretary of state there. He's gone to a number of counties trying to get them to ditch their vote counting machines. Here he is speaking at a county commission meeting in Nye County earlier this year. It's imperative that you secure the trust of your constituents in Nye County by ensuring that you have a fair and transparent election. And the only way to do that is to not use electronic voting or tabulation machines. Now, again, that is not true, but Nye County still listened, and they're going to do a hand count this November along with their machine count. These sorts of pushes are happening all across the country. Yeah, so this is a whole trend. How are election officials all over the country responding? So I talked about that with Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon, who's a Democrat, and he told me a group there has also been pushing, going county by county, trying to push for these sorts of hand counts. No county, thankfully, has uh, gone in for that. But it is a movement, and we're keeping our eye on it, and it's distressing to see. Now, it's distressing to him because moving back to fully hand-counted ballots and getting machines out of this process would make voting run worse in every sense. It would make it more expensive. It would make it so elections take a lot longer to count. And most importantly, it would make the counts less accurate. Yeah, that does feel like the most important point. How do we know that? So there have been a few studies that have actually confirmed this. Most recently, there was a study that was published in 2018 that looked at Wisconsin, which has a lot of really small election jurisdictions. Some places they're hand count, some places use machines to help with the count. Researchers there looked at two statewide elections that both recently had recounts and found that in both cases, the counties that had machines help with their counts were closer to the final recounted tallies than the counties that that hand counted their ballots. As you mentioned at the top, humans generally are not good at really monotonous, precise tasks like counting. And then if you add in the fact that right now election officials are under this really intense scrutiny and around election season, these are people who are working 15, 16, 17 hour days, kind of makes sense that they would make some mistakes in that counting process. So if that's all true, then why are some on the far right arguing, no, let's go back to hand counting everything? So experts I've talked to see this as part of a broader trend where these sorts of election conspiracy theorists are working to make elections basically run worse and more chaotic under the guise of election integrity. I spoke about this with Jennifer Morell, who's a former election administrator and who's now a consultant. And here's what she said about the people pushing for hand counts. They don't even understand what that looks like and what the process is to do it accurately and correctly, or they wouldn't be calling for that. So I think it's to continue just to feed the mistrust of the system. So if election denying candidates do win state and local races this November, it's going to be something to watch from a policy perspective. NPR voting correspondent Miles Parks, thanks for watching for us. Thank you. At the Supreme Court today, most of the nation's pork farmers were pitted against California and the Humane Society of America. At issue is a California law banning the sale of pork from pregnant and nursing pigs that are confined to spaces so small they can't turn around. NPR legal affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg reports. The case is about more than pigs. It's about how much regulation a state may constitutionally enact 
when those laws have a significant effect on what happens in other states. In this case, California has fewer than 1% of the pork producers in the country. The state imports more than 99% of the pork meat it consumes. But the voters in the state, by a lopsided margin, voted to ban pork products that come from pregnant and nursing sows who are confined in cages that are so small they can't turn around. At the heart of the case is the Constitution's Commerce Clause, aimed in part at promoting interstate commerce and preventing trade wars among the states. Now, that may not sound like a humdinger to a lot of listeners, but the Supreme Court's time limits on arguments seem to have flown out the window of late, and an oral argument that was scheduled for an hour and ten minutes morphed into well over two hours. Timothy Bishop, representing the pork producers, conceded that California could ban pork products outright in the state, but he maintained it could not impose laws that affect what happens in other states. Justice Kagan. If you're thinking about costs, California banning your product would be the greatest costs of all. We're talking about the impact on the state where the business is located. Uh, You know, Iowa has 65,000 cell farms. What California's doing, Bishop said, is essentially trampling on Iowa's ability to breed those sows. Justice Sotomayor pointed to a brief in the case from scientists who argue that keeping sows so confined increases the likelihood of new diseases jumping from animals to humans. And Justice Barrett seemed doubtful about the pork industry's assertion that a state's moral interests should have no role to play. In that vein, there were many hypotheticals. Supposing this case occurred prior to the end of slavery, asked Justice Kagan, could a state ban products produced by enslaved people? Justice Gorsuch asked why not let the market decide whether California's law would achieve its desired results. After all, he said, there appear to be some pork producers willing and able to step in and meet California's requirements. Defending California's law, State Solicitor General Michael Mongan faced just as many tough questions. Several justices noted that a lot of policy disputes could be incorporated into laws like this. What would stop Texas from banning products produced by union labor? Or another state from banning fruit picked by undocumented workers? Or yet another state from banning goods produced by people in a state with a lower minimum wage? Justice Alito. Is California unconcerned about all this because it is such a giant? You can bully the other states, and so you're not really that concerned about retaliation. Justice Kagan followed up. You know, we live in a divided country, and uh, the, the, the balkanization that the framers were concerned about is surely present today. Uh, you know, do we want to live in a world where we're constantly at each other's throats and Texas is at war with California and California at war with Texas? The questions were sufficiently difficult that both Justices Kavanaugh and Kagan noted that the case had come to the court at what is known as the pleading stage, without a trial or findings of fact. That could allow the court to make a minimal decision and send the case back to the lower courts for a fuller exploration. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. You are listening to All Things Considered.
The war in Ukraine has caused billions of dollars in damages. Ukrainian officials complain that Russian missile strikes are specifically targeting civilian infrastructure. Rail lines, power plants, and dams have been destroyed. Back in April, Russia cut off the water supply for the southern city of, Mik- of Mykolaiv. Missile strikes blew up two pipelines that carried water from a nearby river to the city. NPR's Jason Bobian reports the city has been struggling to get clean water ever since. At a series of taps set up on a sidewalk in downtown Mykolaiv, 58-year-old Natalie Rosenthal is strapping two large plastic jugs of water onto the rack of her 10-speed bicycle. It doesn't fall off? No, no, it's okay. The Red Cross hauls water to this site in tanker trucks and stores it in a pair of galvanized tanks. Residents of all ages bring plastic jugs of all sizes to fill up the taps. They're young boys, old women. Men load jerry cans of water into cars. Rosenthal says she rides just over a mile each day to fetch water for her family. There are now more than 70 clean water points set up in the streets in Mykolaiv. The Red Cross station has 10 spigots. Others are just a single hose dangling from the back of a tanker truck. Unfortunately, now in October, there's no drinking water in Mykolaiv from the central water supply pipes. Boris Dudenko is the general director of the water supply company of Mykolaiv. He says the city has had this problem since mid-April, when Russian forces blew up two separate pipelines from the Dnipro River. The pipelines were the primary source of water for this city of a half a million people. Their problem, the damage was in an area occupied by Russian forces. Dudenko says repairs to the pipes would be relatively easy, but his workers can't cross the front lines. We tried to reach an agreement to allow us to repair the water supply lines. We asked the Red Cross, the United Nations, to participate in negotiations with both sides. But unfortunately, there were no negotiations. Everything failed. Concerned about the public health risk of there not even being water for toilets, city officials were desperate for a solution. Dudenko says building a new water pipeline from a river on the opposite side of the city was appealing, but it would be expensive and take months, and they didn't have the money or the time. They decided their best option was to tap into an existing industrial pipeline that was pulling water out of an estuary on the Black Sea. The amount of salt in this water is almost like the real sea. That's why we have so many problems with this water. We call it aggressive water, and it damages steel pipes, pumps, and other devices. The water that flows out of the taps in Mykolaiv now is yellow, salty, and smells a bit like a swamp. Residents say they don't even use it to wash their dishes. Dudenko says the water company is in a difficult position. Ukraine's southern military offensive may soon wrest back control of the pipeline. But if the troops don't, Mykolaiv is facing a winter with people fetching and lugging water through the city's frozen streets. And Dudenko says every day the salt water runs through Mykolaiv's system. It's eating away at the pumps and pipes. He says they're studying building an alternative viaduct while hoping Ukraine's military advance will make that unnecessary. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Mykolaiv, Ukraine. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good afternoon, I'm Steve Brown. 65 degrees in Boston at 549. Ahead on WBUR's All Things Considered, Baltimore prosecutors have dropped charges against Adnan Sayed, the subject of the podcast Serial. He was released from prison last month after serving 22 years for the murder of his ex-girlfriend. That's ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. And tonight at 7, it's On Point. A California entrepreneur is building affordable homes in South Central L.A. at half the usual cost. How? By saying no to public funding. That's ahead tonight at 7 o'clock here on 90.9 WBUR. The single-family home is both a physical thing and an idea. The physical thing is, of course, a house, usually a yard in the back, sometimes a garage in the front. But it's also this kind of vision people have of what a neighborhood should look like, what a neighborhood should feel like, what a community should be. I'm Sabrina Tavernisi. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Today, prosecutors in Baltimore dropped all charges against Adnan Syed. He was released from prison last month after serving 22 years for the murder of his former girlfriend, Heyman Lee. Lee's death and Syed's conviction were the subject of the hit podcast, Serial. Joining us now with details is NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siokas. Hi, Anastasia. Hi there, Sasha. So Baltimore prosecutors say Adnan Syed will not be tried again. Why not? Well, when Syed was released last month, the prosecutors had 30 days to decide if they actually wanted to pursue a new trial against him or drop the charges altogether. And what they announced today was that they were dropping all charges against him. And the state's attorney for Baltimore City, Marilyn Mosby, said in a press conference this afternoon that as part of the ongoing investigation, they'd recently tested DNA that shows that Syed did not murder Heyman Lee. Let's take a listen. Adnan Syed. His DNA was excluded. And that DNA testing was done on clothing items of Lee's that had never been tested before. What has the response been from Heyman Lee's family? Well, it's been very painful for them this time. Around in remarks to the court last month, Lee's brother, Young Lee, said they felt betrayed by prosecutors and they felt blindsided by all this information. And today, Mosby noted that Lee's family has had a very difficult time. Who has had to relive an unimaginable nightmare over and over again. Equally heartbreaking is the pain and the sacrifice and the trauma that has been imposed, not just on that family, but Adnan and his family, who together spent 23 years in prison for a crime as a result of a wrongful conviction. Anastasia, you explained that DNA shows Syed did not commit the murder. Any mention if the new DNA evidence points to other suspects? 
So Mosby is declined to say if the DNA belongs to any other known suspects in Heyman Lee's murder because it's an ongoing investigation. And Mosby said today that her office had actually received the DNA results last Friday, but they waited to drop the charges against him until today because they were hoping to speak with Lee's family first. According to prosecutors, they received no response from her relatives as recently as early this afternoon. But Sasha, the family's lawyer told us in a statement this afternoon that, quote, the family deserves more than an email sent to their attorney four minutes after news of today's dismissal broke in the media. So what is next now that at least Adnan Syed's case is over? Last month, the prosecutor said they had new information about two other potential suspects in Heyman Lee's murder. The names of those suspects haven't been made public. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of speculation among people who've listened to Serial and other things. Uh, there's a whole lot of blogs and books and interviews and so forth in the wake of Serial. But the investigation's still ongoing, and Marilyn Mosby's pledging that her office is actively pursuing this case and looking for Heyman Lee's true killer. That's NPR's Anastasia Tsiokas. Thank you. Thanks so much. Today, we are remembering a star of the Southern California airwaves. Well, hi there. This is Art LeBeau checking in here. We'd like you to connect with us and help us pick some music and say hi on the air to one of your friends. Going all the way back to the 1950s, you could find Art LeBeau's signature baritone voice on the radio in L.A. The beloved DJ pioneer died this past weekend at age 97. NPR's Tom Dreisbach has this remembrance. If you lived in Southern California in the last seven decades, there's a good chance you not only listened to Art LeBeau on the radio, but maybe even called in and talked to him yourself. You have a beautiful, handsome voice. <laughs> you got me blushing. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot now. We'll play your song okay, first. LeBeau's story starts in 1925 when he was born Arthur Ignoyan in Salt Lake City, Utah. When I met him in 2014, he told me about the moment that changed his life when his family brought home their first radio. I was eight years old, and we plugged it in, and I told my mom, Mom, the box is talking. <laughs> and after that, she couldn't tear me away from this radio. I used to sit with my hands on my chin, imagining somebody at the other end. He served in the military during World War II before eventually talking his way into a job in radio. A station manager in San Francisco said he should change his last name to LeBeau. And by the mid-1950s, he was hosting his own show. It was a moment of transition for the music business. People are playing the Doris Day, you know, okay, sada, sada, sada. LeBeau wanted the new stuff, rock and roll. I'd say, okay, mothers, gather up your daughters. Here comes Art LeBeau and his devil music. Da, 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 da. If, if you're looking, you're looking for, trouble, for trouble, you came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. In the 50s, LeBeau produced compilation albums that topped the charts and helped popularize the phrase, oldies but goodies. But the real spark of LeBeau's shows has always been his two-way connection with fans. In Car Crazy Los Angeles, he took his show on the road and broadcast live from drive-in restaurants where people could shout out requests directly at him. The requests became Art LeBeau's defining feature on the air, like from this show in 1978. Hello. Who have I got here? This is Patty. Hi, Patty. Hi, how are you? Fine. Well, what would you like to hear? I'd like to hear Make It With You by Blitz. Okay. To uh, a certain couple. 
With the dedication on his show, people felt like their loved ones weren't quite so far away, whether serving in the military, working on the road, or sometimes locked up in prison. I would like to tell my husband, Daniel, who's in Chino, California right now. Hi, Daddy. I love you and I miss you. I'm counting down the days and the hours and the seconds for you to come home. LeBeau said he wanted to help people connect without judgment for their circumstances. Over the years, his show developed a devoted fan base, especially among L.A.'s Latinos, and his oldies vibe inspired L.A. bands like Chicano Batman. When I spoke with Lobo, he was 89 years old and on the air six nights a week. It is difficult for me to think of leaving the radio business. I'm still a radio guy, and uh, I think my reality has exceeded my dreams by far. In fact, he kept on working. Art Lobo's final show aired on Sunday night. Tom Dreisbach, NPR News, Los Angeles. If we play a song at the end of our segment, what would you request? What would be your song to be played out on? Uh, that's a kind of a hard choice, but it's by the Skyliners, and it's called Since I Don't Have You. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. From Klaviyo, an email and SMS platform designed to bring all customer data into one place, with e-commerce integrations to help drive revenue at klaviyo.com slash NPR. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at raymondjames.com. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. 64 degrees in Boston at a minute before 6 o'clock. Coming up at 6 o'clock, as All Things Considered continues, Russia's continued its assault on Ukraine for the second day in a row, hitting infrastructure and other targets in cities across the country. That story even more ahead here on 90.9 WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm WBUR arts and culture reporter Cristela Guerra, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Russia continued its assault on Ukraine for a second day in a row today, hitting infrastructure and other targets in cities around the country. It's Tuesday, October 11th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered.
Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. Coming up, we'll have the latest on Russia's attacks on Ukraine. Also, Hurricane Harvey caused catastrophic damage to Houston five years ago. The recovery effort has been a massive undertaking. We saw that immigrant workers, many of them undocumented, were the folks who were really called in as the second responders to rebuild the city. Immigrants are now playing a similar role in Florida, even though Governor Ron DeSantis remains openly hostile about undocumented people in the state. And we remember longtime NPR Midwest editor Ken Barkas, who died today at the age of 67. It's 6.01, now this news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The White House says it is re-evaluating the U.S. relationship with Saudi Arabia after OPEC-plus countries announced a major cut in oil production last week. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the move has angered some congressional Democrats who called the decision short-sighted. Some Democrats are calling for an immediate freezing of U.S. cooperation with Saudi Arabia, accusing the kingdom of helping to underwrite the Russian invasion of Ukraine. National Security Advisor John Kirby says President Biden is willing to work with Congress to determine what the relationship with Saudi Arabia should look like going forward. I think the president's been very clear that this is a relationship that uh, that we, we need to continue to reevaluate. And certainly in light of the OPEC decision, I think that's where he is. OPEC announced last week that it would cut oil production by two million barrels a day, a move that could lead to a sharp increase in gas prices. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration has released new details today about the application for its broad federal student loan relief plan. As NPR's Corey Turner explains, the form is due within the month. In a call with reporters, senior administration officials said the debt relief application will be out by Halloween. They also shared the form itself, which is quite simple. The officials said the roughly 40 million borrowers who likely qualify for relief won't need a special ID to log into the application, nor will they need to upload any documents, including tax documents. Instead, they'll just need to provide the basics, including name, birth date, and social security number, and then check a box promising that they meet the plan's income guidelines. The officials said borrowers should expect to see their debts erased in a matter of weeks. The Education Department is in a rush to do what it can before loan payments resume in January. Corey Turner, NPR News. For many Floridians, hoping to rebuild after Hurricane Ian getting federal assistance begins with an hours-long ordeal. Danielle Pryor of member station WMFE found a long line outside one FEMA recovery center in Orlando. The line outside this FEMA recovery center at Barnett Park starts to form early. Dozens of Central Floridians, including Eva Robles, who owns rental properties in the area, are here to get assistance from FEMA and other partners like the Small Business Administration. It's lunchtime now, and Robles, whose units lost windows and roofs in the storm, says she's been waiting since. Six o'clock. We need a lot of patience because uh, we need to wait a lot of time. More than six hours, it turned out. But Robles was finally able to file her claim. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. Stocks wobbled a bit before closing on a mixed note today. The Dow was up 36 points. However, the Nasdaq closed down 115 points. The S&P dropped 23 points today. You're listening to NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Steve Brown in Boston. Some local physicians are sounding the alarm over a shortage of clinicians in primary care. The shortage is one example of the many hits that health care in Massachusetts has taken in the pandemic. WBUR's Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez has more. 
primary care serves as a sort of front door to health care. A lot of the work involves preventing and managing illness. Burnout is at an all-time high. We saw 50 percent burnout prior to the pandemic. We're now at 71 percent. That's Katherine Jurgen-Barnett with the Department of Family Medicine at Boston Medical Center. She says increasing health care spending in primary care may help the specialty get back on track. We know that we spend about 5% of all health care dollars on primary care, but primary care sees 50% of visits. A nationwide survey this spring found high rates of early retirements and resignations by primary care doctors. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Andrea Perdomo-Hernandez. The city of Boston is honoring a police officer who died of COVID-19 two and a half years ago. Today, city officials dedicated an honorary street sign in memory of Officer Jose Fontanas. The ceremony took place outside the Jamaica Plain Police Station, where he worked for most of his 29-year career. The Boston native was 53 years old when he died. The Worcester Housing Authority is planning to start delivering meals to elderly and disabled people living in public housing in the city. It's starting the Food Matters program in response to rising food prices. Alex Corrales is the CEO of the Housing Authority. He says the benefits of the program are more than just financial. And so there'll be less visits to the ER, um, less need for medication. And so there's a tremendous amount of benefits that come with being able to provide folks not just food, but healthy food. To start, a small group of participants will receive 12 free meals per month. The Housing Authority hopes to eventually expand the program. A family-owned furniture store in Worcester is closing its doors after more than 60 years in business. Rotman's Furniture, Mattress and Accessory is expected to close by the end of the year. The 83-year-old owner, Steve Rotman, plans to retire. The store manager says about 44 people work at the store. Federal regulators are asking ships and boats to slow down when in the waters around southeast of Nantucket. The appeal is being made to prevent vessels from striking endangered right whales that were spotted in that area yesterday. Survey teams for the Northeast Fisheries Science Center are asking mariners in those waters to travel no faster than 10 knots or just under 12 miles per hour. The slow zone request is in effect through October 25th. In the forecast, we'll have some clear skies tonight. The lows will be around 48 degrees. It'll be sunny tomorrow. The highs near 72, partly sunny on Thursday with a chance of showers after 3 o'clock. The highs will be around 71 degrees. Early showers give way to mostly cloudy skies on Friday. It'll be windy. The highs around 68. Sunny on Saturday and Sunday. The highs in the mid-60s. Right now, it's 64 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. Russian forces continued their attack on Ukraine for a second day in a row, hitting cities across the country. In the capital of Kyiv, air raid sirens sounded at 8 a.m. That sent hundreds of families back into the subway system for shelter. NPR correspondent Franco Ordonez visited some of those families this morning, and he's on the line. Hi, Franco. Hi, Sasha. Franco, things had been relatively calm in Kyiv for several months. How have these attacks changed that? You know, it's really struck a panic in the city. As you know, things have been relatively calm here for months. But last night and for much of the morning, streets became eerily quiet after the attacks. Businesses closed down, restaurants closed. 
I spoke with a family sheltering in the Duro-Hojichi metro station. People haven't done that since the earliest weeks of the war. While her daughter played cards, Ina Filipchuk told me, sadly, how familiar it felt being back on those cold granite floors. She's saying it reminds her of the first days of the war when they were sitting in the same spot. She pointed around to all the different corners of the room that she said she knows too well. Her 13-year-old daughter, Maria, told us she was supposed to have her first algebra lesson today. But that obviously got canceled. She says she had also plans to go for a walk with her friends. But some of their families decided to go to Poland. Franco, are they worried that Russia is going to continue these attacks on Kyiv? Yes. They just don't know what's going to happen. I mean, not as many people were in the metro station today as there were yesterday, I'll note. But it's hard, you know, to figure this out. You know, here is Ina's husband, Gene, talking about how the bombings take him back to some of the hardest days of the war. For me, it's a kind of deja vu. It uh, happened again. But uh, this experience uh, was so hard that you try to pack it in a package and put somewhere in a far square not to think about it. I also spoke with another couple who was sitting nearby. They told me it doesn't feel the same. Here's Anna Savenko. She says she has a lot more confidence now in Ukraine's military and its air defense systems. But she says it's still no way to live. She was supposed to have the day off today, but instead she was spending it in the subway system. The worst part, she told me, was the uncertainty. She just didn't know what was going to happen next. She didn't know what Russian President Vladimir Putin will do. We mentioned that Kyiv wasn't the only city hit by these Russian airstrikes. What has been happening elsewhere in Ukraine? Yes, it was the second day of strikes. You know, at least 19 people were killed yesterday in the blast that took out water supply and power stations. At least one more person was killed this morning in an attack on the southeastern city of Zaporizhia. And power was knocked out for hours in the western city of Lviv. And here in Kyiv, they just announced there'll be power rationing in the city. There was an emergency meeting of G7 leaders who pledged more support for Ukraine. And President Volodymyr Zelensky asked them for more modern and effective air defense systems. Franco, how do these attacks change the outlook of the war? Well, on the one hand, it could be a signal of a major escalation in the war. But on the other, it's also raised questions about Moscow's capability. In a public address, Zelensky said last night that it would not deter Ukraine. He said it was a sign of Russia losing and that Moscow was resorting to terrorist tactics because they could not win on the battlefield. He's saying Ukraine cannot be intimidated and that they're more united than ever. You know, let's also be clear that these were attacks on civilian infrastructure. It does not change the calculus on the battlefield where Ukraine has had the upper hand in recent weeks. And the United Kingdom's top spy chief, for example, said today that Russian forces were exhausted and Putin is making strategic errors in judgment. NPR's Franco Ordonez in Kyiv. Thank you. Thanks, Sasha.
Southwest Florida has begun the arduous process of cleaning up and rebuilding after catastrophic damage caused by Hurricane Ian. The coastal cities and barrier island villages are about to find out what storm-struck communities in other Gulf states have learned in recent years, that America has a labor shortage and immigrant workers, many of whom are in this country illegally, fill a critical role in the storm recovery. NPR's John Burnett reports. There's a statue in a riverfront park in New Orleans that depicts, in marble and bronze, a construction worker with a hammer clambering up a pitched roof. Its title, Tribute to Latin American Workers. It's dedicated to the laborers who helped rebuild the city after Hurricane Katrina. Andy Copland, former executive director of the Louisiana Recovery Authority, says back-to-back hurricanes, Katrina and Rita, damaged a quarter million houses. And we didn't have enough roofers, carpenters, plumbers, electricians. Uh, or laborers to fix them all at once. And so we couldn't have rebuilt without help from outside the state of Louisiana. And we got it from the thousands of Latin American workers who came to New Orleans and South Louisiana to help us rebuild. Today, Southwest Florida is where New Orleans was in September of 2005 and where Houston was in September of 2017 after Hurricane Harvey. In Florida, thousands of homes and businesses will need rebuilding, but first, Who's going to drag out the sodden, reeking, moldy furnishings? Adelino is a 49-year-old Mayan from Guatemala who declined to give his last name because he's been living in Naples, Florida, for two years as an undocumented immigrant. He says right now homeowners are paying $150 a day, cash money, to anyone willing to clean out their swamp dwellings. A sizable unauthorized population in Naples had their jobs in hotels, restaurants, and landscaping crews washed away by the storm, and they've taken on this dirty work. We clean the houses, pull out the things that are ruined, and carry them to the curb. Adelino lives in a time-worn mobile home park called Harmony Shores, along with many other blue-collar workers. It took six feet of storm surge during Ian. All their things are ruined and they don't have the luxury of paying other people to clean out their trailers. Valeria Orfila, an Argentine who works as a cook at a school, sits with a friend in the mobile home park, surveying her street lined with unlivable trailers. We have friends who today, on this Sunday, are working in downtown Naples cleaning restaurants and hotels. Though we don't have anywhere to live, we continue to work trying to raise up this city that is so beautiful. Overseeing the recovery is Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. He is running for re-election, he's considered a likely candidate for the White House, and he's openly hostile about undocumented people in his state. Last month, he flew two plane loads of just-arrived asylum seekers to Martha's Vineyard to stick it to liberal enclaves. And last week, he made these comments about four looters. Three of the four are illegal aliens. They, they're illegally in our country. And not only that, they try to loot and ransack after, in the aftermath of a natural disaster. I mean, they should be prosecuted, but they need to be sent back to their home country. They should not be here at all. Like New Orleans, Houston depended on a migrant workforce after Hurricane Harvey. The relentless rains flooded a third of that city and damaged more than 200,000 homes. We saw that immigrant workers, many of them are undocumented. Construction workers were the folks who were really called in as the second responders. 
to rebuild the city, to gut homes, and to to actually put Houston back together. Emily Tim is co-director of the Workers' Defense Project, a Texas immigrant advocacy group that works in Houston. She says a governor should not score political points bashing undocumented migrants at the same time they're helping to clean up his storm-ravaged state. The immigrant workers and the construction workers who are rebuilding Florida They deserve that recognition and that credit and to stop being used as political pawns. A recent statewide poll showed a majority of Floridians approved of the governor's controversial decision to send migrants to other states. It's uncertain what attitudes are about the role of migrant workers in the storm damage zone. I know that they can be a big help because most of the migrants do want to work. Gary Dickerson is a 73-year-old retired carpenter who got a foot and a half of water in his Naples apartment. I just have an issue with people that are not legal. And and so many Spanish people here can't even speak English. But they're all God's children. The migrant workers interviewed for this story, who lost so much, did add this. The community has turned out to help them with clothing, food, and other items. Said Valeria, the Argentine woman, Naples is very unified and we're grateful. John Burnett, NPR News, Naples, Florida. If you like sweater weather or are a big fan of decorative gourds, we have someone you need to meet. My name is Travis Ginger. I am a horticulture teacher, and I also grow giant pumpkins. And we do mean giant. Last weekend, Ginger, who is from Anoka, Minnesota, traveled 2,000 miles to the World Championship Pumpkin way off in Half Moon Bay, California, with some very special cargo in tow. Here we go. That is the largest pumpkin ever grown in North America. The record-breaking gourd came in at a staggering 2,560 pounds, but it didn't happen overnight. So this journey starts about mid-April, so that's about a 180-day journey of growing these things. What was his secret? Ah, labor of love, man. Yeah, also some good genetics, lots of fertilizer, and a pinch of luck. Now, if you're wondering how on earth he managed to move that pumpkin across the country, the answer is slowly. 35-hour drive from Minnesota to Half Moon Bay, California with a pumpkin. It's not like you can set any records for speeding or anything, but uh, we got it there. Ginger won't have to worry about gas money, though. His pumpkin won him $9 per pound, more than $23,000 in prize money. Oh, my gosh, which is enough to buy you quite a few pumpkin spice lattes. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening, I'm Steve Brown. 62 degrees in Boston at 619. Coming up on All Things Considered, remembering longtime NPR Midwest Bureau Chief Ken Barkas, who died today at the age of 67. In business news, the streak is over. After dropping for 16 straight weeks, the average price of regular gasoline in Massachusetts jumped 10 cents in the past week. The new average cost in the state is $3.58 a gallon. That's still 23 cents lower than a month ago and well below the current national average. On Wall Street today, stocks were mixed. The Dow was up 0.12% to close at 29,239. NASDAQ was down 1.1%, closing at 10,426. 
And the S&P 500 closed down 0.65% at 35.89. Marketplace will have the full range of business news coming up in about 10 minutes at 6.30 here on 90.9 WBUR. Sports, the Patriots could be without one of their top offensive playmakers for a while. Running back Damian Harris is likely to miss multiple games with an injury, according to NFL Network. Harris hurt his hamstring in this past Sunday's win over the Lions. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 50 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Sasha Pfeiffer. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. A moment now to honor one of our longtime colleagues, the Midwest Bureau Chief on our national desk, Ken Barkis, who died today of complications arising from cancer. Ken was 67. You can hear his imprint as an editor all through our programs. NPR's Melissa Block has this remembrance. So many of the voices you hear on NPR will tell you that Ken shaped them into the reporters they are today by mentoring, cajoling, and sometimes critiquing with blunt, painful truths when a story was weak or a description cliché. NPR correspondent Tovia Smith remembers one of her first edits with Ken decades ago. And he said he wanted my story to sing or something like that. And when I gave him what I wrote, he just went, like, silent for a second. And then he blurts out at me, I was asking for a symphony. This is like elevator music. (laughs) That stung. But, Tovia says, it didn't take long to discover Ken's big-hearted side. Just below that prickly exterior, he really was a total mushball. Another NPR correspondent, Eric Westervelt, also got his start with Ken as his editor. He would completely cut through the BS, and I'd hear him in my head years later if I was overseas on deadline covering a war or conflict, here's Barkas in my head asking the so what question and how is this new and why would some listener in Miami or Des Moines want to hear this? Ken took immense pride in his Ohio roots and he championed coverage of his region, the Midwest. After years working at NPR headquarters in Washington, D.C., he persuaded NPR to move his job instead to his native beloved Cleveland. That's where he and his wife Ellen raised their daughters, Julia and Kate. Here's Ken on NPR's Talk of the Nation in 2002, countering some stale misconceptions about the Midwest. The Cuyahoga River, which caught on fire, as you all know, in the 60s or 70s, a river that burns was the big joke for Cleveland, is a river that I now take my children out on kayaking, and we see eagles every time we go out. It's just different than the perception, different than the stereotype, and different than that old New Yorker cartoon of a flyover Midwest area. Ken really understood that 
not everything is as it appears in Washington. Marianne Zalesnik is news director at WVXU in Cincinnati. He felt it was really important to hear stories of people who are living their lives not on the coast, not in the biggest of cities, but just people living across the country. It was thanks to Ken's inspiration that NPR now has five regional bureau chiefs based all around the country. Among them, our Northeast bureau chief, Andrea De Leon. Most especially, I think he loved stories that were very human and that took us to places that we might not otherwise go. It wouldn't have to be exotic war zones. They could be much quieter places, but just sort of expanding how we see our country and our fellow Americans and our fellow humans. Outside of work, Ken loved to kayak and hike and bike. He raised chickens and adopted rescue dogs. His Cleveland yard was and is a glorious profusion of bloom. Oh my gosh, he has the most amazing garden. Annie Wu, with IdeaStream Public Media in Cleveland, lives nearby. There is a water feature of a bicycle where the water makes the tire spin. There's a tire swing off of a giant tree in his front yard, and he has always invited children around the neighborhood to swing on that. Which tells you something about Ken. He delighted in sharing both what he knew, he was a great source of gossip, and what he had. Random gifts, like the perfect tomato knife he once sent to Andrea de Leon, or the purple hyacinth bean seeds that Marianne Zalesnik found in her mail one day. This summer, in an email announcing his upcoming retirement, Ken said he wanted to be known as the king of moment of joy pieces. We are all so grateful. Melissa Block, NPR News. This is NPR News. Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass would like to be the next president of the University of Florida. The school's search committee would like the same. But there are students at the University of Florida who do not want that. About 300 students protested outside a campus event where Sass took questions on Monday. Student organizations have criticized his conservative political positions, particularly his stance against gay marriage. Micaiah Seminera was at the protest yesterday. She's editor-in-chief of the University of Florida's independent newspaper, The Alligator. Micaiah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We're glad to have you. Describe for us what you saw yesterday. Yeah, so the student forum was pretty much packed, maybe a few seats left open. And about 20 to 25 minutes before the student forum was supposed to end, we start to hear chanting from outside the door. People start banging on the walls outside of the forum's door, um, stomping in unison, because the protest that was originally outside Emerson Hall had moved inside the building, and about 300 protesters had now moved right outside the doors, but they were remaining shut. And did that forum actually end early due to the protesters? I think I might have read something about this. Yes. So the forum did end about 15 minutes early. Senator Sass and Lauren LeMasters, who's the student body president who was moderating, they both left. And at that point, the doors were opened and about 300 protesters surged in and kind of took control of the room and were chanting. We mentioned gay marriage. What are the main things student protesters are upset about? Yes. So gay marriage, I would say, is probably 
the main point that I've heard from speaking with protesters um, that day and in the days before. Specifically, Senator Sass has said in the past um, after Oberfeld v. Hodges, which is the Supreme Court case that federally protects um, the right to same-sex marriage, he called that a disappointment. So that statement has kind of resonated with a lot of people as being you know, concerning to them. I think a main point also is just his status as a senator. A lot of people are unhappy that he's a politician. Based on social media and based on some concerns that I've you know, heard from some sources, it's very likely that a, a decent amount of the student body is, is upset with this. It's unlikely that the entire student body is uniform in its thinking. Have you heard from any students who are happy about Sass being picked as a potential president? Yes. So we have spoken to um, some conservative groups on campus who are content with Senator Sass's sole finalist status. We spoke with the UF College Republicans who put out a statement and said that they are, you know, largely happy with Senator Sass being the sole finalist. And they've pointed to his academic background. He has served as a president at a small university in Nebraska. What has Senator Sass himself said about the protest? So Senator Sass did address the protest in the moment, kind of in jest. He took it with a in stride. He made a joke about how they were chanting in rhythm, but he did say at the forum when the protesters were outside the door that although he does not agree with the protesters, he agrees with their constitutional right to be able to protest. Other than that, we haven't personally um, seen any statements from Senator Sass about the protest. That's Micaiah Seminera, editor-in-chief of The Alligator, the University of Florida independent student newspaper. Micaiah, thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis, Masters in Mental Health Counseling, with experientially based classes led by supportive faculty, GRE not required, and state licensure eligible, accepting applications for spring. More at bgsp.edu.